Hey, hey, hi, hi, hi. Welcome to I Know I Know, a Solo Beatles podcast where we talk all things Solo Beatles related. We are open tonight to talk (laughs) about, and we are talking with a really special guest, and I am honored to be with him, Mr. Lawrence Juber. Lawrence, welcome to I Know I Know. Happy, happy to be here. So, um, you're here... He's a Grammy-winning guitar player, the ex-guitar player for Wings. Um, Lawrence, what were your earlier, earliest influences with guitar for guitar players? Well, when I first started, I mean, the, the most popular guitar group in England was the Shadows. Oh, nice. Um, who were not only Cliff Richard's backing group, but also had hits on their own. Um, and in fact, I mean, you, you can measure the influence on their influence on the Beatles at the first bona fide composition was actually John Lennon and George Harrison composition is an instrumental called Cry for a Shadow. Yeah. Um, and so the shadows were, were, were important. Um, the Beatles were important. But you've you got to understand, 1963, I started November 63 playing on my 11th birthday. And that year and subsequently, I mean, there was just a massive amount of, of music coming out of England. You know, in 63, the Rolling Stones, the Animals, um, the Dave Clark Five, the Kinks. And then, you know, as time went on, um, you have, you know, Eric Clapton starts to emerge. And all of this really was just kind of, just it was like you know I was just kind of swimming in this this ocean of guitaristic uh, inspiration. So those were important influences. But also once I discovered Django Reinhardt and the jazz end of the spectrum, uh, players like Barney Castle and Howard Roberts, Joe Pass, because um, you have to understand that by the time I got to age thirteen, I realized that I wanted to make my living as a professional guitar player. So my, my sights, my musical horizons were very broad. So I was listening to a lot of different styles of guitar playing. Also the folk guitar players, the early Bob Dylan, Paul Simon. Um, in England, we had a group called the Pentangle, which was Bert Yanch and John Remborn, who really came out of the folk scene. But folk guitar had kind of blues and jazz influences in there too. Mostly, uh, there was a guitar player named Davy Graham, who was kind of like the kind of the first of the post-war British major acoustic fingerstyle guitar figures, yeah. and and I was just fascinated by that kind of self-sufficiency of being able to play guitar without any kind of accompaniment, just creating the bass parts and the melody and everything else yourself. So lot of influences, but the Beatles were very important because you couldn't get away from them, for one thing. Um, what is your favorite Beatles record, just out of curiosity? You mean in terms of albums? Yes. I, I, Rubber Soul always resonates with me, but it's very difficult. I mean, you know, every time I hear a Beatle record or, you know, just a single or whatever, I hear something that I've never heard before. So in that moment, that becomes kind of my favorite. But I think between 
Rubber Soul and Abbey Road. Those are, those are important albums for me. But at the same time, I mean, my, the first LP, vinyl LP that I bought was, was what we had in England, was with the Beatles. We didn't have Meet the Beatles, we had With the Beatles, which was a different, you know, different track listing. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing you gravitated towards the UK version of Rubber Soul. Oh, of course. I didn't even know about any of the American releases until, really, until I got to the States. Um, I was not aware, you know, and, and the, the UK version of Rubber Soul lives up to the title, which the American right. version doesn't. Because the the R and B influences are baked into the UK version, but you don't hear those. The American version was really slanted more towards being a folk rock record. Yeah, which I love both of those albums. Mm -hmm. They're just different experiences. Yeah. So, I want to talk about a little bit about your your work as a session musician with um, Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> Um, you know, Marvin Hamlet, Alan uh -huh. Robinson's Carly Simon. Well, what was that like? You got to go back to the mid 1970s. I, I, I went to London University and got a degree in music. I never formally studied guitar except for having some classical guitar lessons. And that was really, really designed to get me up to a grade level that I could study music because that was really my, my academic passion was to study music and musicology. Because I was doing okay teaching myself how to play guitar and I was making money doing it. Um, but once I left college, I, uh, I had been playing with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which was kind of like a farm team for studio work. And I got spotted by a contractor who booked musicians for st sessions. So I started working straight out of college. I started doing studio work. And... Um, in the nature of that world, it was, you know, I'd work with people from very different kinds of genres. And, and for one reason or another, I, I worked with, like, Cleo Lane was one of the first records I worked on, which was produced by George Martin. So I'm, there I am, like, you know, fresh out of college, you know, wet behind the ears, and I'm, I'm working with the Beatles producer, which was an experience, you know. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you were probably nervous meeting him. For oh, yeah, of course. Time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a professional, you kind of put that to one side and you, you do the gig. Right. Um, the, um, so that led on to, I mean, Rosemary Clooney was, was a really interesting one. I, I worked a lot with a producer named Del Newman who took over um, doing, you know, on the early Elton John records, Paul Buckmaster did all the orchestration. Del Newman took over from from Paul Buckmaster. So he was very much into kind of creating um, music that wasn't just kind of like, you know, chart level music, but was also had emotional content and was geared to a different kind of audience. And I found, I worked with Charles Aznavour, who uh, on an album, we did an album in Paris in 1977 that I, I learned from my own Wikipedia page. <laughs> I had no idea, was number one in France for almost the entire year of 1978. But I did a lot of studio work that I didn't always know who I was working with. Um, one session in particular was at Abbey Road on a uh, Tuesday night 
with a string orchestra and some mandolins and acoustic guitar and harpsichord. Turned out, I le read in a magazine 25 years later, it was for the Alan Parsons Project, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. You know, it's really, in that world, you don't always know what you're doing. Um, but with Marvin Hamlish, I worked on the score of The Spy Who Loved Me. And that was important because when I first started playing, was right around the time that um, the Doctor No, the first James Bond movie came out. And that sound, that twangy James Bond guitar sound was like a, you know, a very inspiring thing to, to get to do that on the, on the album, on the movie score and the yeah. album. Um, was, uh, that was quite a treat. When did you first meet Paul McCartney? Actually, that same year. Oh, really? Um, I was working on a, a, an advertising jingle session at a studio in North London. And on our break, I went to the men's room with the bass player, Herbie Flowers, who's a great, one of the great studio bass players in England, and walked into the men's room, and there's Paul McCartney zipping up his fly. <laughs> Literally, you know, that was a very inauspicious meeting. Um, yeah. But shortly after that, I was working, I was playing lead guitar on a TV show with David Essex, who was a big pop star at the time. Uh, his song Rock On still gets played. Um, and Denny Lane from Wings was a guest on the show. And he, uh, we did Go Now, the old Moody Blues hit, which was kind of his signature yeah. song. And he liked my playing and recommended me to Paul and Linda. Although it took, I mean, that was September of 77. I got the call to audition in, August, in April 78. So it was, you know, some months in between. Yeah. Um, and if I remember correctly, the Good Night Tonight and Daytime Nighttime Suffering single was released before Back to the Egg came out. Um, Shortly before, I mean, there were, while we were recording Back to the Egg, in January of 79, we were all set up um, to be mixing the album because all the, the recording was essentially done. Um, there were a few things, few overdubs to do, but essentially the, you know, the bulk of the recording was done. And we couldn't get into Abbey Road because Cliff Richard had booked it. Um, and, and I think Kate Bush was coming in after that. And, and so Paul decided that as we didn't need a big studio, that we would, he would recreate the control room of Abbey Road Studio 2 in the basement of his office in Soho Square in London. So and he called it Replica Studio. And you walked in there and it was just like the control room and there was a big picture of, of the studio itself with like a little clock, working clock in the middle of it. And it was, it kind of gave you a, at least a sense that you were still at Abbey Road. Um, and we had a meeting on a Friday to discuss the fact that we needed a single. And the outcome of that was that Monday morning, Paul walked into the studio with daytime, nighttime suffering and said, I want to record this today. So the drums got set up in this little kitchenette area and we had, you know, it was like really just a little lobby for, for everybody to be in uh, where we were separated from, the, uh, from the, the control room. 
And so we cut that, that track then, um, worked on that during the course of that week, along with doing some overdubs on Goodnight Tonight, which was already an existing track. Um, and as it turned out, Goodnight Tonight became the single and, uh, and Daytime Nighttime is the B-side. But Paul insisted that he didn't want that to be on the album. He didn't want it on, on Back to the Egg because in his philosophy, the idea was to give value for money to the fans and not put out a single and then put the same thing on the album, right. which was, uh, I think, frustrating to Columbia Records because this was his first album for that label and they had a hit record. They had a top 10 hit with Goodnight Tonight, but Paul wouldn't put it on the album. Yeah, and I think that, um, unfortunately, which this is my favorite Wings album. Uh -huh. Well, you're, and, you and some many other people, it seems. Um, and I think that it would have been what more, yeah, but I mean, it, I don't know if it would fit, fat, fit on the album, but just, all great songs all the way through well it, it's certainly uh, it's it's an interesting record um the critics didn't much like it when it came out but in the course of time it's actually gained uh, esteem amongst the critics and uh, now for example my daughter Ilse is a songwriter and she's walked into writing sessions and found people listening to that album oh really and not knowing that that they wouldn't know that she's my daughter. They didn't know the connection. Um, and especially Arrow Through Me. You know, Erica Badu actually used the intro to Arrow Through Me as a loop on a, on a record. Um, and uh, Ilse wrote um, a song called Treat People With Kindness for Harry Styles, which I played on too. Um, and Harry Styles being a big Wings fan, but a, particularly a fan of that album. So... You know, kind of completes the circle, as it were. Yeah. Um, what are like the highlights of this record for you? The highlights? Well, um, certainly the first batch of tunes that we recorded uh, were To You, Spin It On, and Old Siamsa. Um, those were, the, I think, the first three. And... Um, of, of those three, To You was the weirdest. You know, we had come from, uh, shortly before we went up to Scotland to start kind of coalescing as a band, we had recorded a song called Same Time Next Year, which was a demo for a movie. And as it turned out, Marvin Hamlish got the score and not Paul, so the, that never got released at the time. But that was like a big kind of My Love type ballad with a big string section on it. And it was, you know, kind of, it was what you'd kind of expect from Wings. And then To You was, was totally not. It was this weird kind of some, somewhat punky thing with Paul. Paul was playing an acoustic bass guitar and there was, I, he and I collaborated on doing this weird guitar solo where I would play and he would manipulate what I was doing in real time on an eventide harmonizer, which was a pitch shifting device. Um, and then Spin It On, which was really like punk rockabilly. And that one I think is one of my favorites because I'll never forget when, we did the so when I did the solo on that, I was sitting like eye to eye with Paul, with my guitar, sitting in the control room and just kind of, you know, just going for it and getting a lot of encouragement from him. Um, and that was kind of where I really started to understand 
what his capabilities as a record producer were, the yeah. way that he could bring stuff out of a performer that would, you know, because he got more out of me than I thought that I could deliver, which was, I think, an important lesson for me. Um, and then, you know, doing old Siamsa was just great fun because Paul and I both played guitar on, you know, that guitar lick. Yeah, that helped me that rip. One of his best guitar licks, I think. It's a cool one. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we just, I mean, there are a lot of moments on that album that I, I, I enjoy. Obviously, doing the orchestra session was, was something notable um, because the, uh, the energy of having three drummers and five guitar players and three bass players and all of that. And, and especially, you know, I mean, I mentioned The Shadows earlier, the lead guitarist from The Shadows, Hank Marvin, was standing next to me during the orchestra session. So, and then next to him was, you know, was uh, Dave Gilmore, Jenny Lane and, and Pete Townsend. And for me, it was, you know, like, I mean, these were people that I grew up kind of, you know, being inspired by, and there I am, you know, as part of the guitar section with them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I'm sure it was like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting all these people and I'm going to be yeah, like, I, on a I, I mean, just, you know, and John Bonham sits down at the drums and it sounded like somebody was driving a truck through the studio. It was so loud. <laughs> I know. But, but you, but you know, the, the, there's a, there's a level of inspiration that comes from that. It, the, the, the fan part, you can't let the fan part intimidate you on the playing side. One has to be very much kind of still in the professional mode. Right. But I mean, just great sessions, I mean, all the way through. Like, um, is there a lot of like unreleased material for this album? No, there's not a lot of unreleased material. There was a song called Cage which like didn't make the cut. Bit. It's on the bootlegs. And then there's a tune of mine called Maisie, which was just a little kind of finger-picking instrumental. Um, oh, nice. Other than that, there's nothing that I can think of. During the sessions in Scotland in July of 78, we spent a day recording a whole bunch of demos for the Rupert the Bear project which have never been released to this day. I mean, there's some thought that when, finally, when the Back to the Egg box set comes out, that that I would be included year, in that. I think this year is what I've heard in, my, in the Beatle community, uh -huh. that that's going to be his next combined with one. Well, one album. would think so, but, you know, it's like I'm always the last to hear. <laughs> yeah, because um, last year we got Flaming Pie out of the blue. Yeah, exactly. Which is well, I think that that, that particular period for Paul was a difficult one yeah. because it was clear that this was, you know, it became clear that this was going to be kind of the last Wings album. Yeah. Certainly by the time we got to the tug of war period and George Martin comes in and says he doesn't want it to be a Wings album. He wants to be able to pick and choose who plays on it. And Paul was, was in agreement with that. And Linda was really, had kind of, lost her enthusiasm for it because now she has four kids they want to keep the kids in school they don't want to go off on world tours and they did after the japanese bust they didn't tour again until 1989 you know, yeah. so there was there was no re really no reason to have a band anymore 
unfortunate. Which was a shame because we as a band were just establishing our identity. And you, I think what epitomizes it is the dichotomy between the, the, the coming up version on, um, on McCartney 2, on the McCartney 2 album, and the live version, which ended up as the B-side and then got flipped because the radio didn't want to play his studio version. They loved the, the live version because any time that you have Paul McCartney singing rock and roll, there's going to be excitement about that. And, and so there we are, you know, in, in the summer of 1981. No, 1980, I'm sorry. Uh, summer of 1980 with a number one record in America and no touring plans. And, and so by, by uh, early 19, um, eight, 1981, in January of 81, I had made the decision to move to New York. And Wings was still working at that point. We, we were um, kind of finishing up some, out, some of the outtakes, songs like um, uh, uh, Same Time Next Year, actually got a remix at that point. Um, Love for You. I remember putting some guitar on that, and that ended up some years later in a movie. Um, but Wings was, you know, basically Wings didn't officially fold until April of, of 80, 81. But I was already in New York at that point. Yeah. Um, that's like one of the things is like, I think that Wings was not just Paul, I think it was a band. Um, which I think a lot has been like a disagreement upon some fans. Like, the Wings albums would have not been Wings without Denny Lane and you and everybody else and Linda. I really don't think. Well, I think Linda was a very important part of it because she had a very evolved rock and roll sensibility. So she would kind of, on occasion, pull pull Paul away from his natural kind of pop sensibility into something a little bit more rock and roll. Um, and she was certainly very integral to the vocal sound of the band, yeah. that sound of her, Paul and Denny together. Uh, but the, um, I think that the personalities of the individual musicians did make a difference. I mean, Denny Sywell, for example, came from a jazz and studio background versus um, Joe English, who was more of a, an American-style rock drummer, and then Steve Holly, who was much more of a big, you know, heavy backbeat English rock drummer. And each one of them brought a different stylistic sensibility. Right. I got the gig because I was versatile. I mean, you know, it was pretty tough stepping into the shoes of, of Henry McCulloch and Jimmy McCulloch, given their rock credentials. But what Paul needed at that particular time was somebody who could play rock and roll, but also do the other stuff too. Right. You know, so I could go from, from doing, you know, the, the kind of the crazy rockabilly stuff on, on Spin It On to the jazzy stuff on uh, Baby's Request, for example. Um, just really, or the flamenco style acoustic lead on, um, uh, on Goodnight Tonight. It was just all part of what I did. So 
um, I think that I was able to bring my musical personality, as Steve Holly did in, in our version of the band. And I think that, you know, and Denny was always kind of the, the core of the band. So his version of this kind of on one hand R&B and on, on the other hand kind of English folk kind of fusion, um, which is very much part of his kind of stylistic sensibility, I think all... Um, work together. By the way, did you freeze? Yeah. Yeah, your video Perfect. froze. Oh, here, maybe. I'm, as, I'm he's still hearing you, so as long as uh, you've got me. There you yeah. are, we're back. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I mean, we were encouraged to think of it as a band and not just as Paul's backing group. But there was always that, 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 pull between Paul as the creative focus and then the band bringing their particular sensibilities to that. So at the end of the day, it was still, you know, it was still Paul calling the shots, but we did get to make creative contributions that were outside of his core creative focus. And um, the um, rock rister sessions, like, how did that take a lot of different takes to get that just right? Or was it kind of just... Well, I mean, the hardest part of that was technical. That was the first time I'd seen two 24-track machines synced up uh, because we needed that many tracks because there were so many musicians. I mean, three drum kits would be enough to fill a 24-track tape right there. Um, I don't recall that it was particularly laborious. I mean, we ran the tune, you know, everybody learned it. We probably did three or four takes before we got the one we were happy with. Um, you know, essentially, it was a three-hour session, and we did two tunes. You know, we did So Glad to See You Here too. So it was not a particularly lengthy process. It was just chaos in the control room because there were so many engineers and, and second engineers and technicians all um, making sure that everything was working smoothly. Plus, we had a camera crew there too. Yeah. Um, and then back to the Egg TV special, which I think is really great. Um, do you remember like recording all of that and stuff? Well, we filmed that in, um, that was all done. We had recorded at a place called Lim Castle, um, which was on the south coast of England. And it, uh, the location, I think, more than anything else, was just relatively close to where Paul and Linda were living in Peasmarsh because they'd moved out of London with the kids. The kids were now going to a local school, and they didn't want to have to commute in and out of London every day. So they'd found this medieval castle, and that was where we recorded in September of 78. We recorded a, a number of the, the Back to the Egg tracks. Um, and then we went back there to do the video, the, the videos for the, the Back to the Egg special. Um, so all of the, the album tracks were recorded there. The um, Good Night Tonight video was done at the Hammersmith Palais, which was a dance hall in London. In fact, 
that picture over there was from that session. And that had a revolving stage. So at the wow. end of the video, you know, the stage revolves. And I had played there. I used to play there at weekends um, with a, a, a big band that um, would play for people to dance to. Right out of um, right out of college, I was uh, while I was getting into studio work, I'd go and because I, I was a good sight reader, I could just go in and read all the parts. Um, wow. And, um, you know, making money. <laughs> Um, but but Lim Castle was or that area. I mean, the aircraft hangar for Spin It On was was adjacent to the castle, um, and we went down to the beach, which wasn't very far away for the um, for the baby's request video. And I think for again and again and again, we were stuck in some field somewhere. Um, but but like um, the Love Awake um, Winter Rose stuff was done. Um, in and around the castle. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then when you went on tour, like, was this like difficult to play live, kind of to get it all right when you were touring in England? Um, it was not difficult to get it right. I mean, we rehearsed. The songs were not that difficult. I had a, a fair amount of responsibility because as well as playing electric guitar, playing lead guitar, I also had to double some of the synth lines. So I had a guitar synthesizer in a rack, or actually it was a pitch to voltage converter. Um, and then I also had to do vocoder stuff on Goodnight Tonight. So I had a, like a, um, a, a microphone um, that I could you know, just um, put on and, and then play and, and also sing at the same time. Um, and I had a, we built a custom pedal board for me and I had Roland, the equipment manufacturer had started making what they called the Roland rack, which was, had a preamp and, and a, a pitch to voltage converter and a dimension D, which was a, an early, very cool chorus device. And I had that running through a pair of um, Marshall four by 12 speakers. So I could get like on Let It Be, I could get this big kind of chorusy, quasi Leslie sound and then be able to switch over to my lead guitar sound on a Mesa Boogie amp. Um, so there was a fair amount of kind of just technical organizing for a tour like that. But, but the material itself, I mean, you know, once, once you learn the tunes, it's then just playing it for audiences and getting better at it. So by the time we got to Glasgow, for the end of the tour, we, I think the band was really cooking. And that last flight uh, bootleg is pretty representative of where the band was going. I think we would have gone further. I mean, we, you know, when we got to Japan, of course, Paul got busted. Yeah. Um, so we never got a chance to, to add. We, we added Another Day, Live and Let Die. I forget what else. Oh, Let Them In. Uh, oh, those got added to the set list because all of those had been big hits in Japan. And then you also worked with Ringo on Stop and Smell the Road. I Rose. did. Um, in July of 1980, Paul called me up and said, uh, I'm producing some stuff, some tracks for Ringo. Do you want to come and play? So I said, sure. So we trooped off to the south of France to Super Bear Studio, which is where the Pink Floyd had been working on the wall. Um, 
and spent like 10 days you know, in just outside of Nice. I mean, it was really, it was kind of a vacation as much as anything else. But to be in a studio with Ringo and Paul together. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, it was like, like whoa moment, as it were. <laughs> was um, George Harrison there? Because he was no. also on the album. No, George was, uh, anything with George or, or um, like Harry Nilsson produced some stuff. I think Stephen Stills produced some stuff. Ringo went to different producers. And Paul did, um, we did Sure to Fall, the old Carl Perkins. We did um, Private, Private Property. Property, Attention. And then there was this jam we did called You Can't Fight Lightning, where Ringo actually played one of my guitars and cut his finger and bled inside it. Oh, and I have, I have spots of Ringo's blood inside my guitar. <laughs> so if we ever need to clone him, I have his DNA. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Um, but... Um, yeah, that was that was quite an experience. Um, yeah. But I mean, working with and then after that, you went solo. What has your solo career brought to you? Well, I mean, that was a process because when I got to New York, I got back into doing studio work. I was working on some band projects, but the studio work was actually came very quickly. Um, but then I met Hope, who became my wife, and she was from L.A. And I moved to L.A. in October of uh, 1981. We got married the following March. And it, it took, me, took me about six months or so to really start getting into studio work here. Um, and because we started raising a family i didn't want to tour so i you know i had turned down a few potential band offers um and then once i got into studio work that that really kind of um moved very quickly and i ended up doing a lot of work in tv and movies and records really up until about five years ago when i um, I had, in 1990, I put out a solo acoustic guitar record, which actually got some radio airplay, and I got a lot of encouragement to do more. Um, so I kept doing it, and I, th I think I've done, like, about 30 at this point. Oh, wow. I mean, the Beatles instrumental ones are the ones that I've... Four, four albums of Beatles instrumental. Which are beautiful. I well, thank you. But favorite. that was never my intention. Oh, really? Um, when I started doing solo records, I was doing it as a composer, yeah. as an artist. And, and so my first batch of albums were all original material. It wasn't until Hope, my wife, said, you know, people keep asking you for a Beatle album, and I kept saying no. And she said, well, if you don't do it for anybody else, do it for me. So I said, well, okay, well, you can produce it, and then I'll do it. So she did, and that was very well received. And um, then after Paul gave it to Paul, and he said, well, what about wings? <laughs> so, so I did One Wing, which was you know a bunch of, of post-Beatles McCartney. Um, and then, um, then I did another one, because people kept asking for more, and it just kind of ended up I've done four. Um, and Hope keeps trying to talk me into doing another one. And I actually, at this point, I probably have enough r arrangements that, that haven't been recorded to uh, to do another one, but I've got a lot of other things on my agenda. Yeah. Um, when did the first one come out? 
uh, 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's 20, 21 years ago now. Yeah. So it's gone by quick. <laughs> yeah. And then 1995, I started working with Al Stewart and produced four albums for him, produced, arranged, played on, recorded, um, and did some touring with him as a duo. Oh, nice. So I would open the show acoustically on my own, and then we'd play two acoustic guitars together. And we did touring with that, um, and as I say, like f recorded four albums. Um, and then my my own activities just kind of got to the point where uh, I didn't have time to work with Al anymore, and and then I started. Um, touring more extensively. I got up to the point where I was doing about 100 shows a year. And then oh, wow. I got to be more than I really wanted. So I kind of told my agent to, you know, less is more. <laughs> and um, then, you know, I was doing that right up until COVID shut everything down. And then yeah, since yeah. then, I've been doing Facebook Live three times a week. Yeah, I've been, I've watched the, some of the recaps on YouTube and it's uh -huh. wonderful. You're so just so talented. Well, thank you. Um, it takes I, a lot I, of practice. Yeah, I'm. I played a little. I play a little bit of guitar. So, uh -huh. well, good for you. Thank you. Um, um, and I know you've been going to Beetlefest. Mm -hmm. What is that experience meeting fans like? Well, I mean, there's a you know, there's such a fan base, and it's really a, you know, the Beetle world is is really quite a community. And, and it's a, an ideal audience for me to be playing my Beatle arrangements to. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fun to be part of a celebration of, of the band. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I realized, you know, some years ago that this was never going to go away. You know, it's not like some bands just kind of, you know, thing, you know, the, the, the era is gone and they, they become kind of, you know, Wikipedia footnotes, as it were. Yeah. But, but, you know, being Beatles adjacent is kind of, you know, a, a different, it's a different level. Um, but the fact is that, you know, my period with Wings was really just a small part of my career, an important part, an, an influential yeah. part. And certainly, you know, good on my resume, but, you know, having, you know, put out as many albums as I had, played on some very big movies and records. I mean, you know, Dirty Dancing, Goodwill Hunting, Pocahontas, um, TV shows like Home Improvement, Roseanne, Seventh Heaven, um, a lot of stuff. And I'm still learning, you know, still learning about things I played on. I mean... Uh, one time, I think 1977, I played on a, a record for a, an Italian artist named Lucio Battisti. I had no idea. He was like Elvis in Italy. <laughs> and I still get emails from Italian fans wanting to know about, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, being a professional musician is, you know, puts you in interesting places. But, but my primary thing was always to be a guitar player. Yeah. But I also understood as time went on that my skill set was that of an arranger and a composer and a producer. And I just learned so much over the years from, from working in studios and you know, working with artists as to how records actually get made. 
and how the business of it works. And um, it's just been, you know, it's been quite a journey, really. Not sure where it's going next. I know that I'm playing a lot more electric guitar these days. Oh, wow. Um, and what's your favorite guitar to play? Right now? Yes. My favorite electric, which was just handed to me last week, is the Paul Reed Smith. Oh, nice. And um, it's not plugged in. But it's a hollow body with a, a an acoustic guitar pickup built into the bridge, so I can blend the electric and the acoustic aspects of it. Um, Beautiful. My my signature model guitar is, is this, which is a, a Martin. That's um, that's a, an orchestra, what they call an orchestra model. Oh wow! Um, and this one is Cuban mahogany. Oh wow! That's with a, a high alpine Swiss spruce top. You know, over the years, I mean, I put a lot of thought and, and research into finding the right wood combination and the um, just the right dimensions and everything for me to do what works for me as a guitar soloist so oh. that that particular guitar is the kind of the latest incarnation of it and probably the final one too i don't know that it can go any further do you remember what guitar you used in wings for yeah i mean i still have um i live i used an sg which i still have um in one of the cases over there is a, is the, the three, 335 that you see in the good night tonight video number of those guitars are, uh, I've traded or sold because I just, you know, it's always kind of moving forward. Um, I do have the Les Paul Goldtop that I, I got uh, in New York on the way to Japan, but that didn't get used on any Wings records. That was actually going to get used for the J Japanese tour. Then it, um, you never got it back, right? What's that? Did you ever get that guitar back? Oh yeah, no, it, it was always it's always been with me. Oh nice. Yeah, no, um, I had it. I was hand carrying it from New York to Tokyo, and then when Paul got busted, the customs people came into the room with a, a screwdriver and pointed to the guitar, and I had to unscrew the back panels and show them was nothing stashed in there. I bet that was a pain to put back together. No, it wasn't so bad. I mean, you just unscrew the panels and it, it was just the, I, I wasn't sure what they had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for coming on. I know, I know. Is there anything you would like to plug? Um, just, you know, check my, my face, my Facebook artist page. Um, that's where I do my Facebook live sessions. Uh, or, you know, and if you're not on Facebook, YouTube, I do post occasionally put excerpts from those tea times um, onto YouTube. Um, and my website is lawrencetuber.com. I'm very Googleable. I mean, just, you know, you can find me. I'll link in the and my book, uh, I do have, I don't have a copy handy, but um, my book, Guitar with Wings, has all of my pictures including, I mean, you, you might not see it very clearly, but there's a picture of Paul with a squeeze box up there. 
wow. with for the, the platinum record. That's when he, we were recording How Many Million Miles. So there are pictures from the Rockestra session, um, as, as the story of my career, but also um, a lot of granular detail about recording the Back to the Egg album. So um, that's, and then, you know, I, I'm on the streaming services, so uh, Apple Music, um, Spotify, Pandora. Seems like on Pandora, it's my, my old Christmas music that gets most of the play. Um, but Spotify, I, I, a few years ago, I scored a video game called Diablo 3. So my top tracks on Spotify are the, the Diablo 3 stuff. Uh, but my, my, um, my, solo, my own work gets, gets played too. Um, but, you know, there's, and the, the album, I recorded an album in 1979 that Paul asked me to take stuff out of his publishing catalog. There's an album called Standard Time, which has Maisie, which is that um, Back to the Egg outtake. That's, that's on that album. Um, oh, so, you know, the fact that the first tune that I wrote, I got Paul McCartney to play bass on is, I think, pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lawrence. Well, you're very welcome. And awesome. good luck with your, your podcast.